are the damn dangerous? Francesca was. But now that our pilgrim has settled into his body, and a boat has settled down into the waters of sticks carrying him, can't the damned threaten pain to our pilgrim? Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we walk passage by passage through the inferno. You're welcome to join us right here at this passage, but I would suggest you go back because a lot in this passage is going to pick up from what we have already done. We are in Canto 8. We're at lines 31 through 63 of Inferno, Dante's masterwork, the first canticle of comedy. And here's the passage. As we were crossing the dead muck, a figure covered in mud rose up in front of me and said, Who are you who comes here before your time? And I to him, If I come, I don't stick around. But who are you who have become so gross? And he replied, You see that I'm one who wails. And I to him, With wailing and mourning, damned spirit, may you stay here, for I recognize you even if you're covered in filth. Then he reached with both his hands for the boat, but my wary master shoved him back, saying, Over there, with the other dogs. Then he put his arms around my neck, kissed my cheek, and said, Indignant soul, blessed is she who was pregnant with you in the world above. He was puffed with pride. Not one good thing graces his memory. That's why his shade is so furious. How many up there think of themselves as great muckety-mucks, yet will lie like pigs in this muck, leaving behind nothing but horrible contempt. And I, Master, I'd really like to see this one dipped deep in the broth before we leave this lake. And he to me, Before the shore lets itself be seen, you should be satisfied. Such a desire should be fulfilled. Right after that, I saw the muddy people rip apart that gentleman so badly that I still praise God and thank him for it. They all cried, Get Filippo Argenti! And this crazy Florentine chewed himself with his own teeth. Okay, that's the passage. It is a piece of a much longer passage. If you want to go back and look at a previous episode of this podcast, there's a point at which I read, oh gosh, all the way from toward the end of Canto 7 all the way out to toward the end of Canto 9, and I do this entire giant passage because I wanted to give an overview of it, but mm, this is just now one piece of it. They're crossing sticks, Virgil and Dante the Pilgrim. They're in the boat with Phlegias, although we don't see Phlegias. We assume he's still guiding the boat because later in the next episode he's going to speak so we assume he's guiding the boat still and this is this moment in which a soul tries to climb up into the boat and get at them poses in other words some physical threat this is a famous passage let me just say that Filippo Argenti, that's who this is Filippo Argenti who is named late in the passage is rather a daunting figure he becomes a character in the eighth tale of the ninth day in Boccaccio's Decameron. And he becomes a character known for his 
wrath. And here we are in the circle of wrath, crossing the river Styx. And if you don't know, this scene of crossing the river Styx is the first major painting by Eugène Delacroix. It is La Barque de Dante, the, the, the boat of Dante, painted in 1822. Look it up online. Look up Delacroix's La, ba- La Barque de Dante. It's a wild eerie scene particularly look if you see the painting look at the thing crawling into the boat from the opposite side of where we are where the viewer is there's a thing crawling up into the boat on the opposite side with these glowing eyes it's like it got us some modern horror movie and there's Dante and Virgil inside the boat and of course Delacroix would pick a scene like this this is a major splash painting his first and this scene carries all of the romantic Sturmendrang that he wanted inside that piece. But we're not talking about Delacroix, we're talking about Dante. So let's talk about the passage. It starts out by saying, as we were crossing the dead muck, a figure rose up in mud in front of me. Now, remember, before, they had been walking along the edge of sticks, the swampy sticks, and they had seen figures fighting each other out there. And then Virgil had said, and by the way, there's other people who are sullen, who were way down under the water, and you can only see bubbles coming up from them. We'd seen people fighting out there in the muck. Then they get in the boat with Phlegius, and now they go across. And apparently, one of those figures fighting in the muck rises up and says, who are you who comes here before your time? This strikes me as extremely important because notice here, the damned recognize the pilgrim as alive. Who are you who comes here before your time? The corporeality of the pilgrim has been settled. From here on out, the damned are going to remark, how are you breathing? How is this one breathing? How does this one's throat seem to move when he talks? In other words, how how is an alive thing down here with us? This starts this great theme now that we've settled the question of corporeality, really settled it. Who are you? Who comes here before your time? Or I should say, almost settled it. Wait till the next episode. And I to him, if I come, I won't stick around. And who are you who become so gross? And you replied, you see that I am one who wails. Let me just stop here and say a couple things. First of all, let me point out the medieval Florentine to you. What the pilgrim says is, if I come here, I won't stick around. Non rimango. That's what he says. I won't, I won't stay here. I won't stay. I won't stick around, as I translated it. But who are you who has become so gross? And then he replied, you see, I'm one who wails. Un che piango. Non rimango un che piango. That's the rhyme. Why is that important? It actually is important. Because we have a little glimpse here of a form of poetry that Dante the poet engaged in. It is Tenzone. Tenzone, a tenzone is a match between two poets. In Dante's day, this became quite a popular form, and it's a form of insulting. So here's how it goes outside of this passage. It's almost always done in sonnets. I write a sonnet to you, you're a fellow poet, and I insult you. I make fun of your the woman you love, I make fun of your mother, I make fun of your family, I make fun of who where you're from. I don't know. You know, right? I insult you in some way in a sonnet. Now, in a rhetorical gesture, you have to insult me. But what you have to do is you have to write a sonnet back to me 
and you have to use my rhyming. You don't have to use the exact words I use uh, in the sonnet, the exact words I use for rhyming, but you have to use a similar word. So if I said non rimango in one of my lines, you'd come back with un che piango in one of your lines. You would match my rhyming line for line. And in this way, and then I would write you back and all thing would go down. We'd get into this tense <laughs> match of rhetoric and wit and insult. I'm laughing because it seems so wild, right? That this is how you pass your time. But okay, fine. This this wild uh, tenzone, this wild fighting with sonnets. This is the first time this actually occurs, and it's a little hint of it because of the way that that this figure, who we later find out is Filippo Argenti, the way he rhymes off of what Dante the Pilgrim says. And since they rhyme off of each other, it's an echo. It's not a sonnet, but it's an echo of a tensone, and it starts up this entire theme. This theme of tensone is going to carry out all the way through Purgatorio. In fact, we're going to reach in Purgatorio one of the poets who Dante had Tenzoni with. We're going to meet Donati up in Purgatorio, Dante's wife, Gemma's cousin. We're going to meet this poet that Dante had a, mm, a match with, a poetry insult match with at one point, way up in Purgatorio. And this seems to me, this little bit of two lines, is just the setup of what's going to become bigger and bigger. Remember I told you, I believe that this is a structural strategy inside comedy, is you drop small hints, well, you, the poet, <laughs> not necessarily you, the poet drops small hints, and along the way they get bigger and bigger and bigger until you drop the entire big thing bang on your head. So this starts the tensone thematics that are going to continue on. We're going to see it again and again inside of Inferno. We're going to see actually Dante get in trouble for it once in Inferno, way on down the line. And then it's going to come to fruition up in Purgatorio when he meets one of the very poets that he had tensone with. Okay, so that's part of what's going on here. But let's back up and ask a human question. When Filippo Argenti stands up out of the muck and says, who are you comes for your time? Obviously, he's recognizing that Dante's alive. But then he says, you see that I am one who wails. That's what Argenti says. You see that I'm one who wails. What is that? Is that a plea for mercy? Is that a plea for help in some way? You see that I'm one who wails. It may be a plea for mercy, and we'll watch this play out over the course of this entire passage, but it may in fact be a plea for mercy that happens right here. Remember I told you that it's kind of weird that there's these towers and they're signaling to each other across the sticks, swamp, the lake, the river, whatever this is, this swampy, marshy bit of sticks, and there's these two towers, and I said, why do towers need to signal each other? And one of the things could be that people tend to escape sticks. And maybe that's here. You see that I'm one who wails. Maybe this is a, I don't know, a plea for mercy. Get me out of here. The theory is that the, t the towers signal to each other and Phlegus has to go pick up the stragglers. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe it's something a little more human. Maybe Wales is the best that this figure can come up with in this truncated Tensoni match, maybe, at this point, and it's not very good. It's not a very good insult. He's not able to insult Dante back. Hmm. It's a curious phrase, though. You see that I'm one who wails. What else would you be doing in hell? All right, so let's move on. And I to him, with wailing and mourning damned spirit, may you stay here. Why, can he leave? 
may you stay here, for I recognize you, even if you are covered in filth. Intriguingly, neither the poet nor the pilgrim names the figure. It's actually rather intriguing and may play out later in the passage. Plead for mercy, not naming here, but now comes the threat. So this guy reaches into the boat, right? What's he doing? Is he trying to get in the boat to get away? Is he trying to get in the boat to get at Dante? Is he trying to get in the boat to overturn it? Um, it's unclear. It, we're, we're certain it's threatening. He reached with both hands for the boat. Oh, and my wary master shoved him back, saying, over there with the other dogs. And then comes what will become <laughs> one of the two most curious passages. Then he, Virgil, put his arms around my neck, kissed my cheek, and said, indignant soul, blessed is she who was pregnant with you. There is so much to unpack here, so let's stop and unpack it. First off, why is Virgil pleased? Is Virgil pleased that the pilgrim has reacted in wrath? Because Virgil names it indignant, wrathful soul, indignant, wrathful soul. Blessed is she who was pregnant with you. Is that what he's thrilled with? Is that Dante said, damn spirit, may you stay here. I recognize you even if you're covered in filth. And Dante's ire at this soul has gained him Virgil's approval. Is Virgil thrilled that he has put down one of the damned and that Dante has let Virgil step up into a real guardian role here and step forward? Mm, interesting, but it's still indignant, wrathful, angry soul. Blessed is she who was pregnant with you. Now, I want to tell you that there's two verses from the Bible sitting back behind this passage, but before I get to them, I want to give you other pieces of strangeness in this. Blessed is she who was pregnant with you is the only reference in comedy to Dante's mother. In fact, as far as I know, I looked through the, the rhymes and other poems last night, as far as I know, this is the only reference in poetry in Dante period to his mother. Now, we know that Dante lost his mother at a very early age, and that she comes up here is curious because of what may happen later in the passage, there may be a familial reference that's ringing around inside of this. I got to wait to the end of the passage to get to all that. But maybe that's why a reference to the mother comes up here. But two things. Blessed is she who was pregnant with you. This is almost a direct quote from Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus has been casting demons out of people, and he's cast some demons out, and then he gives a little lecture about what happens when you cast demons out. And one of the things he claims is that the demons leave, they wander around waterless regions. I love that in the Greek, the waterless regions. And they look for a place to rest. They don't find any, so they think, yeah, I'll go back to the guy that I left, the guy that I was possessing. They go back, they find out that that house, the guy, is all swept clean and neat and in order, and they don't know what to do so the demon goes and gets seven more and they enter in and make a bigger mess than they did before in other words you can cast out a demon but it may not last forever okay fair enough that, there it is and right at that moment as he was saying this the passage says now here comes verse 27 as he was saying this a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you this phrase, blessed is she who was pregnant with you, is probably a reference to that passage. 
other people and other commentators have seen a reference to the Ave Maria in it. Uh, basically, um, the Ave Maria that is in Luke 1 when the angel comes to the virgin and says, you're going to have a child. Some people see that in it too, maybe both passages. I tend to see the, the later passage in Luke and it doesn't matter because here's the thing. In both passages, those are sentences addressed either to the virgin or here to Jesus, but they're both about the Messiah. Either the Luke 1 passage with the angel announcing to Mary that she's going to have a child is about Jesus, or this woman comes up to him in the crowd and she's talking to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you. So either way, it's about Jesus. And wow, why is Virgil putting that weight down on Dante, the pilgrim? Does Virgil, and this is the big question I've been dancing around, does Virgil somehow see Dante as messianic? And I said Dante because I'm not clear when I ask that question, I'm not clear, is does Virgil see Dante the pilgrim as messianic or does Virgil see Dante the poet in the background as messianic? Because this is a messianic phrase, blessed is she who was pregnant with you. Now you're going to say, what kind of ego did our poet have? Well, a lot. A lot, let me just say. But it's still sitting there, and it's curious. Is Dante the kind of Messiah that Virgil, a non-Christian, a pagan, could anticipate? Maybe. He's using Christian lingo to do it, which makes it super curious. That's one thing. Secondly, we should say that Virgil seems proud of Dante for not being sucked down in the muck with Filippo Argente, not fainting as he did with Francesca, not getting distracted the way he did with Chaco. He seems to be pleased with Dante's position. Hmm. Let's think about that for a minute. Let me go back to Guida da Pisa, one of the very, very early commentators, and let me quote you his gloss on this passage. What he said is, the sorrow of the damned should move no one to compassion, as the Bible asserts. And the reason for this is because the time for mercy is here in this world, while in the afterlife is the time for justice only. In other words, Dante is learning not to be in sympathy with the damned, and Virgil is pleased with this movement. That's a traditional way it's read, and it's probably sitting there in the passage itself. Virgil goes on and says, In the world above he was puffed with pride. Not one good thing graces his memory. That's why his shade is so furious. And then there's this tercet, which I believe is in Virgil's voice, but I want to tell you that I, I, not everyone, that's not everyone who believes the next three lines are in Virgil's voice. How many up there think of themselves as great muckety-mucks as the passages? It's great kings. I translated it as muckety-mucks, but as great muckety-mucks, yet will lie like pigs in this muck, leaving behind nothing but horrible contempt. Okay. I Now, that I've given Virgil those three lines. Some people think that they're not in Virgil's line, that the poet has stepped in there and offered a judgment. I don't think so. I think it's in Virgil's mouth, and here's why. This is where I'm coming 
all the way around. Here's the other verse sitting behind this passage. It's in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In many Pauline letters toward the back of the letters in the New Testament, once Paul gets through some doctrinal stuff and some church business stuff to the churches that he's writing to, in this case, the church at Ephesus, then he comes in for, at the end of some of his letters, about a bunch of aphorisms, a bunch of um, how to live your life on a daily basis. Do this, do that. Let this happen. Don't let this happen. Put away from you all bitterness, you know, stuff like this, typical ways to live your life. So what's sitting behind this passage is Ephesians 4, 26, 27, along in there. Let me read you the whole passage. He says, Paul says, so then putting away falsehood, let us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. It's right there. Be angry but do not sin. In other words, there is clearly a kind of anger that is justified, that you can be angry without sinning. Now, I'm just, I'm not saying whether I think this or not. I'm telling you what Pauline theology is, that there is a kind of anger that does not lead to sin and thus do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And I know in the United States, we hear this phrase a lot from people, and they, what it means, they say it means don't go to bed angry. No, come on. This is a Hebrew. <laughs> this is Paul. He comes out of a Hebrew tradition. Sunset is, in Jewish culture, the beginning of the day, not the end. What he means is don't let the sun go down your wrath right there. What he means is don't start the day angry. That's coming out of the Jewish tradition, what he would mean. He doesn't mean don't go to bed mad. He means don't start the day mad. But Okay, nonetheless, there is some kind of righteous indignation that can happen. Remember, and this is, oh, here, I'm coming finally. Let me, blah, let me come all the way around to the point. Here it is. Remember, I've been saying that we've been developing an Aristotelian mean. Remember when we got to the avaricious, that we had those who were hoarding and those who were wasting. And I said, it seems to be setting up this idea that there are two poles of a sin. And in Aristotelian ethics, then there's a median point. There's a liberality. You know, you can, you can be avaricious or you can be prodigal with your money, but there's a liberal, the Aristotelian word is a liberality with your money, which sits in the middle. And then I said, and we got up to the anger and Virgil pointed out those who were tearing each other up with their teeth and those who were sullen sunk in the water. And I said, again, we seem to be saying there's poles, which means there's some kind of middle ground. This is the middle ground. Indignant soul. Blessed is she who was pregnant with you. In the world above, he was puffed with pride. Not one good thing grazes his memory. That's why his shade is so furious. How many up there think of themselves as great muckety-muck that will lie like pigs in this muck, leaving behind nothing but horrible contempt? This is why I think we've come to a dramatic change in the poem. Because the notion of what is the Aristotelian mean. Okay, you got the poles, you got the crazy angry, and you got the sullen. And then you've got to have a middle middle point that is righteous anger. And instead of anyone pointing it out, instead of anyone saying, and now we come to the middle point, which is a righteous anger, it's acted out in storytelling. Dante the Pilgrim's anger acts out the... Aristotelian mean in storytelling, which tells me the poem has changed. The story 
is now the point. Instead of an overt statement about what anger is, anger and sullenness, as we had back in Canto 7, now it's being dramatized. The point is subsumed in storytelling. Here is where the poet's genius begins the engagement that will win him 700 years of fame. Because it is not a bunch of theological propositions. Instead, story will carry the theology, the philosophy, all of it forward. And I don't think that line, how many up there think of themselves as great muckety-mucks, I don't think that line is from the poet because, first of all, it's talking about people up on earth, which it strikes me the poet wouldn't say it that way. And two, again, This line doesn't need to come from the poet. It's in Virgil's mouth. And that it's in Virgil's mouth means it's part of the dramatic action rather than an insertion from the poet. There's going to come an insertion from the poet. But the, the theology is being set in the characters' mouths. This all strikes me as a tremendous advancement in the poem. This is what's going to win Dante 700 years of fame. The very notion that story can carry the point. And in my opinion, as I've said before, this is what he learned from Virgil, that all of Virgil's politics are subsumed under the story of the Aeneid and the founding of Rome. And that story carries the politics, not overtly, but as a strata underneath it. Having said all that, let's go on to the back of this passage. And I, Master, I'd really like to see this one dipped deep in the broth. In questa broda. In the broth before we leave this lake. I think that's important. Here's why. That's a callback to Chaco. That's a callback to gluttony. To call sticks broda, to call it broth soup, to make a culinary gesture right here. I'd really like to see this one dipped deep in in questa prora before we leave this lake calls us back to chaco and why because of who this is that's come out of the swamp this is why it's important to call back to chaco it's a little bitty resonance to the gluttons watch and he to me before the shore lets itself be seen you'll be satisfied for such as desire should be fulfilled right after that i saw the muddy people rip apart the gentleman so badly that i still praise god and thank him for it they all cried get filippo argenti Ah, here we go. Filippo Argenti. According to Boccaccio, who was a big storyteller, Argenti was a member of the Adimari family. The Adimari family were black Gelfs. Dante is a white Gelf. The black Gelfs exile Dante. They are his bitter enemies in the Florentine factions. And the reason it's important to see This reference to the gluttons here in Questa Broda is because, remember, Chaco prophesied Florentine strife, and we're seeing it acted out right here in front of us. This is a member of the Ademari family, the very people, Black Elves, part of the Black Elves, who put Dante to exile. His name is Filippo Argenti, according to some of the early commentators, because he was so wealthy that he had his horses shod with silver. Thus, Philip silvered Filippo Argenti. That's 
Sounds good. It's almost hard to believe. Even in a world of hedge funds, that's hard to believe. Uh, that he was so wealthy that he had his horses shod with silver. Other commentators say it was because he had silver hair. That's why his name is Argenti. Um, but many of the early commentators claimed that this fellow's brother, Filippo Argenti's brother, Boccaccino, not the, not the writer Boccaccio, but Boccaccino, this, this fellow's brother, is the one who got Dante's property at Dante's exile. In other words, this family, the Ademari family, of which Filippo Argenti is one, are the ones who sucked up all of Dante's property and essentially stole it when Dante was driven out of Florence. In other words, you know how the old saying is, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord? No, vengeance is mine, saith the poet. If this is the family that stole Dante's goods... Well, then Argenti gets what he gave right here, as he is torn apart by the wrathful in the swamp of sticks. Notice, too, that this is a reference back to Canto 7, 1, 14, where we were told that the wrathful tore each other with their teeth. And notice that Argenti does, in fact, tear himself to bits with his own teeth. I should also add here that some of the early commentators claimed that it was not a matter of stolen property. Some of them claimed that Argenti, that this fellow, Filippo Argenti, slapped Dante in public in a kind of, you know, um, shame move. You know, you slapped him in order to shame him in public on a public street. And that, uh, you know, as part of the black gulf, white gulf, mm, shaming of each other. Some claim that Argenti uh, was one who opposed Dante's return to Florence. All of those things, whether it's stealing your property or slapping you in a public street in a moment of humiliation in public, or here, um, you know, opposing your return to Florence, all of this is vendetta. All of this is leading to vendettas on all sides. And here, maybe, we see the poet acting out his vendetta against this black gelf, Filippo Argenti. It's kind of crazy, and that's why I say maybe that's why there's a reference to Dante's mother in this passage, some kind of familial feud between the blacks and the whites, between the Admari and Dante's own family. It is an, maybe an out-of-control moment of vendetta. Where's the shame? Well, the shame lies in stealing Dante's property, the mayor slapping him, mainly in the passage itself, too. After all, Dante says early on, the pilgrim was wailing and mourning, damn spirit, may you stay here, for I recognize you, even if you're covered in filth, which is a terrible insult. It's really foul there, and maybe that's the shame, and that shame then causes Argenti to want to get into the boat with them. It brings up his vendetta toward Dante, and then Dante brings his vendetta out toward Argenti when he says, you know, I'd really like to see him dipped in the broth, and then he gets torn apart, ripped to shreds, for which Dante, the poet, the poet, not the pilgrim, says, I still praise God and thank him for it. I still remember this as the poet, and boy, this was a good moment. It felt good. And this crazy Florentine spirit, the passage concludes, chewed himself with his own teeth, that word bizarro, bizarro Florentine spirit. Boccaccio claims that this is a Florentine slang word for bizarro at the time, for sudden and irrational wrath. Interesting, right, that that's how that word bizarro enters the language. And if Boccaccio is right, it's kind of Florentine slang right there uh, for somebody who is overcome with sudden and irrational wrath and chews himself up with his own teeth 
and they pass on in the boat. This is a wild passage, right? It's wild from the get-go. There is so much, so thick through this passage, so much that is opaque, so much that because, why, 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 why? Because this passage is about storytelling, because it's about getting the story told, and the points are being subsumed into the storytelling, and we're having to pick them out a bit. But really, step back from it. Think about the operatic nature of this passage. Think about the dramatic nature. No wonder Delacroix wanted to paint it. The passage itself lends itself to so much, all the way down to that final moment when the crazy, bizarro Florentine spirit chewed himself up with his own teeth, which only seems fitting for the, for the angry, for these here in this circle of hell, the circle of wrath. I want to conclude by reading you something else. I have a Presbyterian minister, <laughs> writer, that I love. I am not part of this tradition, as I've said a thousand times, but I love Fred Beekner's writing. He's a Presbyterian minister, and he wrote a book a long time ago, gosh, maybe even in the 70s, called Wishful Thinking, a Seeker's ABC, and it's basically a dictionary of various terms, hmm, Buddhism, faith, mercy, that he is translating from his theological perspective. Let me read you his definition of anger, because I don't think that I could say anything better about Filippo Argenti than Fred Beekner's definition of anger from the book Wishful Thinking. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you were given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the Feast of Anger is always you. I can't imagine a better way to end this passage, so let's call it quits. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope you'll subscribe. Please rate it. I could use a rating. Drop a comment. Go right down there to the bottom of the Apple page. You'll find the comment box. You can rate it. You can drop a comment. I would much appreciate it. If you like poetry, check out my other podcast, Lyric Life, which is all about the pleasures of lyric poetry. There's an Emily Dickinson poem in the, up in the week that I'm recording this. And otherwise, come back, because we're not across sticks yet. we got to get this boat with Flagius and Virgil and Dante across, and we're going to do that in the next episode of Walking with Dante. Bye.